I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Adam Rutherford on the story of how we became us in the Book of Humans. Dr. Adam Rutherford is a science writer and broadcaster. He studied genetics at University College London and has written and presented many award-winning series and programmes for the BBC, including the flagship weekly Radio 4 programme Inside Science and the Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry with Dr Hannah Fry. He is the author of two previous books, Creation, which was shortlisted for the Wellcome Trust Prize, and A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived both of which we've talked about on previous Little Atoms. And Adam's latest book, The Book of Humans, The Story of How We Became Us, is what we're going to talk about today. Adam, welcome back. Hello, Neil. It's nice to be back. So how does The Book of Humans follow on from the the previous books? Well, it's almost a direct sequel. Uh, In fact, part of the genesis of The Book of Humans was one single line that I wrote in the final chapter of uh, A Brief History. And... People who are familiar with my work, I know you are, will know that I drop film quotes into my work all the time. As you have in this one. As I have done many times in this one. And sometimes they're secrets and sometimes they're not and sometimes they're just for my own amusement. But there was a line at the end when I was talking about how similar our genetic code is, but how unique that bestows our personalities and our behaviours and on that genetic code. And I wrote the line, everyone is special, which is the same as saying that nobody is. And when I gave it to, when I handed over the, the draft to um, my literary agent, Will wrote back saying, yeah, I like the way you've quoted that film in the, in the last chapter. And I went, what? And that, he said the line, and I said, what's that from? And he said, that's from The Incredibles. <laughs> and I, I love The Incredibles, and I was, I was embarrassed that I'd, I've started quoting films and I don't even realise it. Anyway, it came from that. And so it, the, the Book of Humans is, is about the sort of paradox of us being both biological, evolved, part of the tree of life, same coding system, same proteins, same cells, and yet we are removed from it. We have acquired culture and a distinction from the rest of biology. And that is the sort of the paradox at the heart of the book and the heart of the human condition, and that's what I'm exploring. And even once, you know, once after the theory of evolution, you know, by natural selection, and we society are generally cottoned on to the idea that we are animals Mm. rather than, you know, created beings. 
we still have this idea that we're somehow a, a higher form of animal, don't we? Yes, and I, I think we, we certainly do. And and again, I'm not providing any answers in this book, but merely questioning the uh, the wisdom of saying things like, well, we are specially created or that we are special. How special are we? And you're you're right. We you know Darwin put us very squarely on the on the tree of life as an evolved creature. I open the book with a line from from Hamlet, because I think Shakespeare does it better, <laughs> as he did quite a lot. But it's it's from the um, the famous um, "What a piece of work is a man" soliloquy, uh, in which he he says, you know, what oh, is. I thought that was from Withnail and I. It is also from Withnail and I, but I think I think he was, I think he was paraphrasing. <laughs> But this line in it, when I was when I was thinking about, you know, how to how to frame the argument, he says this line about, you know, that, that we have in apprehension like angels, in intellect like God, we are the paragon of animals. And I thought that's a, that is it. That's the crystallisation of the idea. We are animals, and yet we are the paragon. We are a special form of of animal. So it's about that. It's about trying to understand human exceptionalism, trying to understand how we're different yet evolved what it is that makes us similar to other animals, what it is that makes us unique amongst animals. And also, it's a sort of analysis of what often is the folly of trying to use animal behaviour to to understand our own behaviour. And you spend quite a bit of time in the book talking about things that animals do that, you know, we do have to be quite careful here, I would describe it, that look similar to things that the human beings do culturally. Um, Before we get on to that, because we're going to talk about that for a while, I think, let's talk about, there's obviously been members of our species that, you know, were the same as us for like, you know, 400,000 years or something. But at some point, some things happen. Something you describe in the book as they people that have the full package, yeah. basically. What are the things that we have as human beings that sort of sets us apart? Yeah, so that's another aspect of this conundrum. So it's not just the conundrum of how we are obviously biologically related and on the tree of life, but behaviourally very different. But also there's this second conundrum, which I think is fascinating, which is that if, if we were to take a Homo sapiens from 200,000 years ago, and we now think that the earliest Homo sapiens are around about 300,000 years ago, but if we just take one from the last you know, quarter of a million years, tidy them up, give them a haircut, maybe a shave if it's a bloke, put them in some nice clothes, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between them and us in any this city. This is Encino Man. It is, basically, that terrible, terrible film that I cannot believe you brought up at this point. <laughs> but, yeah, 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 they would look identical to us. And yet behaviourally, we are massively, massively different. And something did happen. Now, when you say something, it does imply that there was like a, you know, a click of of the fingers or uh, some sort of trigger after which we have what we call behavioural modernity. So, or the full package is a nicer way of phrasing it. And some people say, refer to it as the cognitive revolution. But, you know, we're talking about 10 to 20 or 30,000. Yeah, again, that suggests a thing that happens overnight. Right, right. I think revolutions should be quicker than 20,000 years. And we don't really have a good grasp on what the numbers are. But what we do know is that by 40,000 years ago, and in the next 10,000 years, between 40 and 30,000 years, we see the appearance of a number of things in the archaeological records which become permanent, and they include art and sculpture and abstract art, the, the ability to have abstract thought, which is implied by that. We see the emergence of musical instruments. And these sort of cultural artefacts, which are indicative of those people having minds that were the same 
as ours. And so the question then becomes, well, why for 200,000 years did none of this appear? And, and we looked physically the same and genetically we think we haven't changed significantly in that time as well. Why then do we suddenly see the emergence of, of the full package of behavioural modernity? And we see, you know, things like the cave paintings in Lascaux in the southwest of France, which are sort of 20,000 years old, or 40,000 years ago, we, we have the, these amazing sculptures like the Lion Man of Holy Fells and the, the Venus figurines, which are, again, abstractions of the human body. And so they display a level of cognitive ability, which is like our own. We see them in southwest Europe, but we also see similar sorts of things in Africa and we see similar sorts of things in Indonesia. And they all sort of pop up at the same time. Now, in, in Philip Pullman, it coincides with a sudden jet of dust, that, what he calls dust, but some, some sort of influence from the universe, which gives us consciousness now. Yeah, I don't think that really happened. I, that, we, we don't have specific evidence for that happening, but it's a great story. But the question is, well, what is that dust in, in the real world? Well, what changed? What changed in our behaviour that meant that all of those things suddenly appeared at roughly the same time? And this is then flying pretty much right to the end of the book. There are ideas, there are like now common ideas about why there might have been a sudden uptake of these ideas. What are they? Right, right. So I, one of the things I argue at the beginning and all the way through is that, that I'm, I'm really, really opposed to triggers. In general, I reject the idea of these singular events that happen in evolutionary history where things are significantly different the day after that event. Because evolution just doesn't work like that. And so lots of people over the years have made successful careers suggesting that this is the thing that makes us human, right? That it's music or it is uh, language or communication or it is wearing clothes or fashion or, or even like recently there's an idea knocking around which is that uh, taking hallucinogenic drugs was one of the things or the thing that switched us from being the earlier humans into the, gaining the full package. Now it's none of those things and it's all of those things. Um, because evolution is much messier and more complex and more sophisticated and happens over a much longer period of time than we can than we have the ability to process. And the idea that I think is most interesting in terms of us acquiring the full package is not to do with individual things, you know, the acquisition of speech and language or the ability to abstract, to think abstract thoughts or hallucinogenic drugs or anything like that individually. What it is, is the way we organised our societies. And so we now see the mathematical models which archaeologists use with geneticists and evolutionary biologists and where they plug in all of the information they have about artefacts from certain sites. And what we see is that when populations reach a certain size, the information flow between individuals gets maximised. It gets optimised and below a certain threshold, it's, it, it's inefficient. And so it's what I think is the most appealing idea in the emergence of the full package of behavioural modernity is this idea that demographic transition was, was the, the, the one thing that underwrites everything else that we begin to see. And that includes all the art and the culture and the music, musical instruments and, and, and abstract thought and consciousness and all those things, sorts of things. But it essentially is the way we structured our societies as a result probably of climate change allowing our, our populations to grow beyond certain limitations that had existed in the past. And so one of the arguments I use in the book is that we are we're a species of experts. Humans are experts 
almost by definition in something everyone knows how to do something and that distribution of expertise is not matched in any other organism and so you know if you want to learn how to do something what do you do you ask someone who knows how to do it and if we if we apply that idea to say if we ignore for a moment the idea that we actually bred it out of them the neanderthals they had all of these things they had the fire they had the representative art potentially the language but they didn't have the numbers that may be the case and we're not sure about that but one of the things the neanderthal story has changed in the last couple of years and continues to change to this day but yes i spoke a little bit about this in in the last book in a brief history um, but more so in this one, we have to now put away the idea that, that Neanderthals were, you know, th- sort of oafish thugs, uh, heavyset cavemen. They, they, they looked physically slightly different from us, but not so much that we didn't have sex with them and interbreed with them. And we, we white people carry Neanderthal DNA with them. But we also now know that the earliest abstract art or abstract representations that I think is reasonable to call art which exists in a cave in Cantabria on the northern coast of Spain, uh, were dated earlier this year. So this is right up to date and put the dates of those images at about 60-something thousand years old. The only people in Europe at that time are Neanderthals. So they have abstract art. We know they had fire. We know they have tool use which used fire, so wooden tools. You know, they, they had every single indication of being indistinguishable from us in terms of behaviour. It may be that their populations were just smaller. And we see some of evidence for that in the genetics and Neanderthal DNA. But it may be the combination of us turning up in greater numbers, swamping them maybe, having sex with them maybe, fighting with them maybe, we don't really know. But maybe their numbers weren't big enough to undergo this demographic transition that I, I argue is, is the thing that underwrites how we became the people that we are today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hi, 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neo Denny. Today I'm talking to Adam Rutherford. We're talking about his new book, The Book of Humans, the story of how we became us. And so, Adam, let's move on to talk about some of those cultural ideas that we talk about as being the full package in humans, but we'll apply them to animals. So let's talk about, first of all, animal use of tools. Yeah, so that's been a thing that that's Darwin suggested separated us from other animals, tool use. And we are obligate tool users and have been for millions of years. Um, so the earliest tools, the earliest stone tools uh, in the archaeological record, the so-called Alderwan choppers, um, which are sort of you know flat-faced, small stones, often made of volcanic glass-like stones like obsidian, chipped away to, to give a, a pointed edge and a sharp edge. Now, they they actually appear in the archaeological record more than three million years ago, so a long time before Homo sapiens or even the genus Homo exists. Um, so we, we see them in... The, the earliest example is with a species called Kenyanthropos. Now, that technology then remains stable for a million years and is seen all around the world and in many different hominin species. And then it slowly gets replaced with another cutting technology uh, called the, uh, the Acheulean uh, tool set, which was named after a, a town in northern France called Saint-Acheulean, but was first discovered in Dis, which is in East Anglia. And, and that's a bit more complicated and they're bigger, they're bigger axes, they've got sharper edges and there's a few more aspects to them which make them more useful tools. But they were also stable for a million years as well. So that between those two, the older one tool set and the Acheulean tool set, that accounts for about 95% of human tool use over time. And it's only really since then that, that everything expanded into the, the obligate tool users that we are today, including fire as part of that too. So... We've been tool users for millions of years. And then you ask the question, well, is that it? Is that the thing? Right? Is that the thing that separates us? And the answer is, well, no, because we know that across nine different classes of animals, they use tools. About 1% of animals use tools, which isn't a huge amount, but that's you know a significant number. And we see it in all sorts of, you know, a wide range of animals, so lots of primates, some cetaceans, like dolphins, Crabs, uh, mollusks, like snails, you know, I forget the rest of them. Lots of birds, the corvids. Uh, and so you think, well, OK, if we're going to use a straight evolutionary, to test a straight evolutionary idea, if all sorts of animals as widely distributed across the taxa as those use tools, the question becomes, well, do they, is there an evolutionary antecedent, which was the original tool user, and all those animals have been, you know, have, have inherited that? And the answer is quite clearly not, because we separated from crabs I don't know, 600 million years ago, and there are huge gaps in tool use between those two things. Daniel Dennett calls this as an example of a, of a good trick, right? Extending one's physical ability by adapting the environment. That's what tool use is. So we see loads of really, you know, amazing examples, the, the many primate examples that people see on David Attenborough docks, but also things like, you know, fun stuff like the pom-pom crab, who picks up two anemones and uses them to ward off enemies, other enemies. That's a tough sentence. (laughs) He uses enemies to ward off enemies. Thank you. And and we now know that a lot of birds use use tools. And then there's one section in the book which I thought was absolutely fascinating to write about, and again, it's relatively new to science, although known by Aboriginal cultures, is that there are three species of raptor who they can't create fire, but they will take sticks from burning bush... In Australia, in the Australian savannah, 
they will take sticks on fire and fly away to a place where it's not burning but dry drop them in start a new fire and then perch up in a tree and watch and wait as all of those little critters and small mammals run away from the fire and then they go and eat them now this we think is the only example of another animal apart from humans using fire in this way starting new fires really brilliant wonderful example of the most exciting ethology animal behavior does it mean that the roots of fire are the last common ancestor of birds and humans no of course not this is an this is an acquired trait it's an it's an example of convergent evolution and those are the things i'm sort of I'm, I'm interested in talking about animal behaviour and I'm interested in comparing it to human behaviour but not necessarily to say that they're the same thing. So tools is... I, I know where you're going with this because there's half, half of the book is about tools and the next half of the book is about sex because that's another thing that is... You know, human sexual behaviour is fascinating and well-studied and w- one of the stats that we worked out with, with the statistician David Spiegelhalter in there in the book is is that almost no sexual activity that could result in a baby actually does. So about one in a thousand bouts of heterosexual penetrative sex results in a baby. So then you go, well, okay, stack on top of that all of the sexual behaviour that can't result in a baby, and you say, well, what is sex for then? Well, obviously it's for making babies, but statistically it's clearly not, because almost no sex involves making babies or results in making babies. So is that a thing? that separates us from the animals. Do other animals have this proportion of non-reproductive sex? We have separated sex from reproduction highly effectively. So is that unique to us? And the answer is... I imagine it's like a big no. It's a big, big no. Well, hold that thought. We're going to come back to that in a bit, as you correctly guessed. But I just want to look at another example of an animal that's adapted a behaviour that could perhaps be described as like something that like humans do. And that's this chimp that stuck a piece of grass in its hair. <laughs> Julie, Julie, yeah. What an amazing story that is. So, you know, we're sitting here like two regular guys and you've got a T-shirt with Cthulhu on it and, and I've got my standard sort of uh, mid-40s uh, post-goth black costume on with my Nikes. And, you know, we, we sit... Humans are... We wear clothes, and fashion is a massive part of our existence. And even when we reject fashion as being, you know, an absurd thing, that we are definitely not interested in in something as trivial as fashion, that's the nonsense. We signal how we dress. We signal with how we dress. We convey all sorts of messages. We we care about how we look, and, and it's important. So do any other animals do the same thing? And it appears to be a very, very rare thing in the rest of nature to adorn oneself in the way that we describe as fashion. Lots of males of many species, of many sexual species, are highly adorned. But we really truly understand why that is, and we understand the sort of, not only the evolutionary biology behind that form of sexual adornment, and we understand the genetics of it as well. But it's very different the way that we, you know, we choose to dress. So is that a thing? Well, Julie was a chimpanzee. She, she died a few years ago now. But in 2007, woke up one morning and um, stuck a blade of grass, stiff blade of grass in, in her ear, in her left ear. And that's an odd thing to do. <laughs> it's an odd thing to do if you're a chimpanzee or a human. But within a few days and then weeks, the, the people studying Julie's tribe 
noticed that her son, whose name was Jack, I don't know who names these, I'm sure Jack was, didn't call himself Jack, but he started wearing a, a stick in his ear. And then her best friend, who was called Kathy, also did that. And after a few weeks, the majority, I think it was eight out of 12 in her immediate family group, were wearing a stick in their ear. Now, Julie died a few years ago, but the last time they were observed, they were still wearing sticks in their ears and also two other tribes that were not genetically related and not didn't you know, socially interact uh, particularly closely with Julie's group were also wearing sticks in their ears. Now, we think this, this is the only example that I've come across of what could possibly be described as a fashion in that it doesn't appear to have any... Um, reproductive benefits it doesn't appear to be sexually selected it just it, this is a thing we try and then just to stay with the in-group other chimps also adopted it it's a really cool story uh, it, but it, in some ways it highlights quite how rare this behavior is and, and this being something which appears to be pretty much uniquely us so back to non-reproductive sex then and no, we've all been to the zoo and seen monkeys masturbating and stuff, and that's a, a sort of familiar idea. And I want to take us on to, again, I think everyone's heard of, nowadays everyone's heard of the bonobo, which mm. is this relative of the chimpanzee that basically, you know, spends its entire life having non-reproductive sex. Genital, what do they call it? Genital? GG rubbing. Genital, GG genital rubbing. rubbing, yeah. Um, as a, you know, a means of communication, as a means of sort of, of dispute resolution, um, lots of things. But what's also really interesting about the bonobo is, as you, as you mentioned in the book, that they're, they're an odd case because they're so sort of like geographically cut off. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And so, so this is part of the, the argument that we, we sort of touched on earlier, which is that we, we, we should be very cautious of observing animal behaviour and using it to justify or understand our own. Chimpanzees and us separated something like seven or eight million years ago. Uh, and it's a messy time in human evolution and we don't really know how clean that separation was. But the branch that becomes chimpanzees also separates about two million years ago, one and a half, two million years ago, with one group being separated by the Congo and and forming a population which then evolves into being the bonobos. And the bonobos have always been isolated on this on this bank of the you know small area of, of the Congo since then. Now chimpanzees have a patriarchal male dominated society uh, which is um, very violent. Bonobos have a matriarchal society, which is not absent of violence, but is is largely non-violent compared to chimpanzees. And they have this, as you say, just copious amounts of sexual interaction, which is male-female, male-male, female-female, male and female adults with um, juniors, with infants. And numbers vary depending on which group you're, you're studying, but you know, up to 20 times a day there will be some sexual activity between individuals. Things that are slightly alien to us, like penis fencing, there's a lot of clitoral, clitoral rubbing. And as you say, they do it when in anticipation of a nice meal, they do it for conflict resolution. The females establish hierarchy with GG rubbing, and unusually females separate away from the main group and then form, they either join other groups or form other groups and they establish their own hierarchy in new groups also by cultural rubbing now you know we talk about bonobos a lot because that sounds well it sounds exhausting 
Um, but it's quite exciting. It's a, you know, it's 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 an interesting behaviour that we don't see very often. Often in the political discourse, we we hear people talking about behaviours like this and thinking about how you know the, the the standard maxim is make love not war. That gets applied to bonobo societies all the time. In compared to chimpanzees who have violent coalition violence, which looks a lot like war. I sort of slightly shy away from using the term war. But chimpanzees have organised coalition violence, which looks like war. Bonobos appear to have orgies. And so you go, well, you know, what is it? Is it that? Are we the way we are? Do we like sex because bonobos are like that? Or do we like violence because chimpanzees are like that? The answer is neither of those things. Those categories, those organisms are worth studying because they're interesting behaviours. Does it tell us anything about our own proclivity towards violence and sex? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Chimpanzees and bonobos are equally related to us in evolutionary terms and also equally distant from each other, obviously. But we sometimes forget that, you know, we separated from chimpanzees eight million years ago, whatever it was. They've been evolving all that time as well. There wasn't like a, uh, you know, a a default behaviour that we have either continued or abandoned over 8 million years. We've got no idea what chimps, what, what, the, what the last common ancestor of chimps and humans and bonobos was like, whether it was into penis fencing or whether it was into coalition violence. We, we just don't know those things. And I think it's dangerous and often folly to assume that we do. Now, a, a common uh, canard of the uh, typical American fundamentalist Christian is that homosexuality is wrong because you don't see it in the animals. Now, boy, are they wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah, against nature. So contra naturum is the phrase that was, was used in Latin for hundreds of years in the Christian church. Yeah, as you say, that's, uh, that's definitely not right. So we see homosexual behaviour or same-sex sexual behaviours in literally hundreds, possibly thousands of different animals across all taxa. Some of it is easy to explain in terms of it fits into evolutionary models that we understand. Much of it doesn't. Um, the example I give of the most striking example of homosexual behaviour that we don't understand is in giraffes. Yeah, this one's amazing. Tell us about giraffes. Yeah, giraffes are I mean, beautiful and amazingly important evolutionary creatures for lots of reasons. But we, we now think that the extended neck is not for foraging because they actually forage at, at shoulder height, but it's probably a sexually selected trait. And exaggerated sexually selected traits in males of sexual species um, tend to be to do with competition. Now, we know that's true because we see Attenborough docks, again, where we see males doing this behaviour called necking, where they, they wrestle and they wrap their necks around each other. And it's absolutely beautiful and striking and, and amazing. And and that may be, although we're not sure, maybe to do with establishing hierarchy amongst males. Males and females are separated for almost all the time. They segregate by sex. What we don't see on those documentaries is that frequently the males have unsheathed erect penises while they're while they're necking, and the winner um, has penetrative sex with the loser. Now, of the thousands of hours of observations across several locations in Africa of giraffes in the wild. The the numbers work out like this. Something like 90%, upwards of 90% of sexual encounters in giraffes appear to be male-to-male, penetrative and ejaculatory. Now then you you say, well, this is is 
bonkers because they can't conceive homosexuality, exclusive homosexuality, is is an evolutionary dead end. But we also know that during that same period of, of the observations that that many calves were born, and and some sexual encounters between males and females were observed. So it's clearly an evolutionary strategy that works. They're procreating quite satisfactorily, but they have a lot of male-male sex as well. And we don't know why. And we don't, we don't understand what behaviour is going on there. We don't understand the purpose of it in their social structure. But, yeah, it's, it's happening and it's real. And it happens across you know, similar examples across loads of species. Just one more thing then. And um, <laughs> nobody who has, who has been online kind of avoided seeing a delightfully cute video of a sea otter disabuses of the cuteness of sea otters, Adam. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, again, the reality of animal behaviour compared to what we're presented with is, uh, well, there's, there's quite a disconnect there. So they do the cute things, like they hold hands when they're sleeping so they don't drift away from their partners, and they crack open bivalves on their chests, another use of another example of, of tool use um, before eating them. But they also do something which is completely inexplicable. So what one particular paper which observed a group in of sea otters near Seattle, and they hold female, teenage boys, teenage boy otters, uh, hold females under the water until they're dead, so they drown them, and then they keep their bodies and use them to copulate with until the bodies fall apart. They also have sex with them so vigorously that they penetrate their, their abdomens um, and the females also often die as a result of infection or, or um, just the wound and they keep the bodies and use them for copulation. Um, the even weirder thing is that the male sea otters also do this with harbour seals. So if, there was, if you could manage to scrape out a, a, a sort of evolutionary reason for why they might be doing this with the females with the females of the same species, that just vanishes when you deal with the fact that they're also doing it with a completely different species as well. Now, I'm, it's, it's an interesting tale, and I'm not writing it because I want to ruin sea otters for people. I'm writing it as an example of, well, this is a behaviour which might look familiar to us in a, in a criminal and certainly immoral way. Necrophilia is remarkably common um, in thought more than in deed. Um, but it's recognised as a as a behaviour that humans do. Um, it's generally accepted to be a paraphilia, you know, a psychopathology. I don't think it's a very controversial thing to say. And murder is something that humans have been known to do on occasion. Is the fact that the sea otters do both of those things related to it, us doing them? Absolutely not. And you'd be mad to think that that uh, that they were related. But again, it's an example of we do one thing which is of interest to us. We see animals doing something which looks similar and is therefore of interest to us. The question is, are they connected? And in the case of the sea otters, I think it's fair to say, no, they're not connected. In the case of the giraffes, well, we don't know. So I've been talking to Dr Adam Rutherford about the Book of Humans, the story of how we became us, which is out now from Weedenfield and Nicholson. Adam, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with me. My pleasure. It's always nice to talk about otters. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up.
and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes. And if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.